We're back on Mars with Matt and oh. Hillary. <laughs> back on Mars. That's right. We're no longer at the movies. Um, I'm Matt and you're Hillary. Mm-hmm. That's correct also. Yes. It's our Kim Stanley Robinson read along analysis discussion podcast. And we're podcast. so excited to be for the first time ever talking about a brand new release <laughs> book of Kim Stanley Robinson's. We did have one episode on Red Moon a couple uh, of years yeah. ago, but yeah. we didn't go into any kind of depth on that one. We just had a kind of a rap session about it. This time for his new uh, novel, Ministry, The Ministry for the Future, um, we're going to go through the whole damn thing. <laughs> we're going to do it uh, old school. Yeah. <laughs> like a couple of old fools. Like some old fools, the old fools that we are. Yeah, um, yeah this is really exciting. I think um, uh, I read only the first two chapters of it like a couple of months ago when Stan sent us a copy, uh, a digital copy of it. Um, mm-hmm. And then I was like, I have, I just have to wait till I can actually be reading the book. Yeah. Like I just felt like I couldn't keep going reading it in this doc form. Um, uh, and I am only, I am at this point about 200 pages into the book and Matt has already finished it. So we're, uh, we're in a condition of uneven development uh, between <laughs> the two of us. I will do my best not to uh, leverage my power over you, my power of knowledge well, about it, what happens I mean, in the rest of the book. Yeah, exactly. I mean, because this book is a lot about uneven development. It is. Um, which um, uh, is awesome. So anyway, the, uh, I, uh, I'm i super excited to start talking about this. And I've started like, um, like getting texts from people saying, I'm starting reading it. So I'm, you know, uh, hopefully, hopefully everybody is as excited as Matt and I are. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm, but, yeah. You're pretty fucking excited. I'm really excited. I like the book a lot. And it's getting um, really conflicted reviews and uh, responses from people um, as far as I've seen so far on uh, in sort of like actual crit- like like published criticism, which I haven't read a lot of because it's been frustrating to me. And then also mm-hmm. just online from people that I've that I've noticed who uh, uh, on the Facebook group, for example. But um I think that, you know, this is definitely, as you were saying, as we were talking about before we started recording, this is a weird book. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not exactly what a lot of people might um, be uh, used to getting from Stan, but also in some ways, but in other ways, it's very much a KSR novel. Oh, yeah. yeah. And um, what we're planning on doing, and because it is, it is, you know, part of its weirdness is just that how wide ranging it is and how heterogeneous internally heterogeneous it is if you will like there are like there's a red thread narrative that uh, is following some specific characters but then there's also these weird essay things and kind of um 
kind of like first person reportage of, you know, uh, unnamed characters distributed mm-hmm. all over the world. There's these riddle chapters that I really love. There's like think pieces in here, um, provocations. There's like a weird, like every once in a while, there's some like weird like dudes doing like some kind of Socratic method or something like that. Mm-hmm, like we're mm-hmm. here to talk about this today or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, no, notes from meetings. <laughs> notes from meetings. I mean, it's a really interesting text on 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 the formal level alone uh, especially when you compare it to his more straightforward like you know narrative novels um and so i'm really excited to talk about about that about its literary qualities as well as um its sort of vision of uh the future and climate change and what we can do uh what can be done if you will to uh halt it and maybe even reverse it yeah i think um uh, so first of all, I think we should say we are going to, our plan for today, although we'll see where we, we'll see how this goes, uh, because the plan, um, you know, it is only a plan in theory. Our plan for today is to talk up through chapter 24, mm-hmm. um, which is almost the first 90 pages of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just wanted to say that just in case you haven't actually read it, because we are, uh, you know... Uh, whatever we're gonna do the spoiler thing obviously right. so um i don't want anyone to be made sad <laughs> <laughs> or angry but, we don't uh, want anyone angry with us oh yeah it's true not sad or uh, neither sad nor angry um uh we'd prefer we would prefer that you were just like very low affect in response. Yeah. neutral <laughs> neutral would be ideal for me very neutral um uh i uh I, to me, the the book makes me think of um, the novel makes me think both of the Science and the Capital trilogy. Um, for I, I mean, I think for obvious reasons, mm-hmm. um, in that it is a very near future, um, uh, so near as to be almost imperceptible as the future, which yeah. I think is. Um, I think actually that's one of the things that makes the book extremely it, both very interesting and like. Um, in some ways quite difficult to think about um, yeah. because it's a kind of um, it's a way of talking about the the present as the future or the future as the present. So I think that's a really interesting thing. Um, yep. But the it, it makes me think of the science in the capital books because it has a it, it has a little of the vibe of those um, uh, the sort of um, there's something that's like um, uh, almost blunt about it. I mean, yeah. it's like it proliferates as uh, Matt, as you were saying, like it proliferates like uh, it's actually very like inventive. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but the other book that it reminds me of, Stan's books that it reminds me of is New York 2140. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, that's a book that I think sort of wears its um, inventiveness um and it's kind of like uh, it's referentiality, it's inventiveness, it's mm-hmm. like vivid, it's vividness. Like all of that is like, you know, that book is just like extremely like alive. Mm-hmm. Um, and this book actually does, I think, a lot of the same things, the shifting of um, point of view, um, impersonal points of view. I mean, that's something we've talked about in other books that we've mm-hmm. 
talked about too, um, the the kind of like movement between longer sections and shorter sections, right? These kind of sections that are maybe coming from, you know, that are coming to us not from a person at all or mm -hmm. from a kind of like choral point of view or something. Um, so this book also reminds me a little of New York 2140, but not, um, not with the sort of that kind of like joyous, expansive sense that mm -hmm. that book has. This is, I would say, uh, a darker, mm -hmm. a much darker book. And, you know, fittingly is not only about like, um, uh, you know, the um, uh, sort of like destruction of the global uh, environment, um, but it's also about trauma and uh, yeah. about violence like yeah. um and it is about like the question of violence in this and direct action but specifically mm -hmm. violent direct action in like a really that is really really foregrounded here um in ways that i think are fascinating and make it feel um again like it really is sort of vibrating with our current moment in multiple directions yeah yeah like um i think that's really well put and i think the 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 use of that term blunt is really crucial here like um it is a kind of uh in contrast to new york 2140 the kind of literary illusions that that book had and the kind of play with the with the history of New York's literature and literary scene, the kind of references to Moby Dick and Walt Whitman and um, all that um, are, you know, if they're here, they're buried very deeply. Like there's, mm -hmm. there isn't that kind of playfulness this in that sense, there's, there's different kinds of playfulness here with form that definitely follow on from New York 2140, but the mode is much more, uh, blunt and like kind of starkly realistic, you know? Mm. Um, and I think that um, one of, and I think that's really interesting, especially in terms of like its proximateness to our own temporality, like our own yeah. historical moment, right? That um, it seems like, <laughs> but from between the publication of 2140, which was what, like 2015, 2016? Uh, and the publication of this book of Ministry for the Future um, seems like some weird things may have happened in the world, like maybe p potentially unsettling political, mm. social, environmental <laughs> things um, that mm. have kind of signaled a time to like stop fucking around <laughs> um, and start taking some stuff like even more seriously mm. than we were already taking it in a certain way. Um, uh and uh, I think that that obviously lends itself to a kind of certainly a much more uncomfortable reading experience than we may be used to when we're reading uh, a book about the colonization of Mars in 70 years or, you know, um, the recreation of the Earth's economic system in 120 years, right? Mm -hmm. Like, mm -hmm. um, this is talking about like, this is really a confrontational book in a lot of ways. And I think that that is probably, um, yeah, pretty uncomfortable um, for some people to read. I think for me, it's very refreshing because uh, it, it is a kind of stark and again, blunt uh, view of what we are, um, you know, the, the rest of the century that we're about to be embarking on in terms of both 
politics and what is what is necessary and what is possible and um, the inevitabilities uh, of climate change and the environment. Um, and then also, like I would say too, that the, the question about violence and direct action, um, in doing press and uh, some events for this in the last couple of weeks, um, Stan has been doing some, which they should be available on YouTube now, but some uh, online, you know, Zoom events in this uh, in this uh, pandemically uh, uh, necessitated distanced Zoom uh, universe that we now live in with uh, a few people. I think one one was with uh, Naomi Klein and a few other people from Rutgers, which was really excellent. And one of the things that he talks about that he talked about was the role of violence in um, the book. And he makes clear that like, these are not things that he is comfortable with. He doesn't want them to happen. They're not fun for him to write. But I think that part of that, uh, the violent direct action that's depicted here is part of that like blunt realism. Like, look, things are going to happen um, that we may not be comfortable with and we might as well think about them now rather than uh, be blindsided by them in the in the future because um, there will be a question of like, which side are you on uh, in this like coming conflict over the future habitability of planet Earth for the human species, right? And um, I think that's something too that uh, the book really wrestles with and and is never really comfortable with uh, uh, or never lets the reader be comfortable with. It it presents it in a very matter-of-factual way that um, confronts you, the reader, with the question of how do I feel about this? I don't think there are any easy answers that the book gives about how you're supposed to feel about it, right? Yeah, I think I would really want to emphasize that because I feel like in some of the some of the responses that I've seen to the novel, um, which I haven't done a ton of um, looking around for this stuff, um, but I I feel like some kind of take it to be like a sort of polemic, mm -hmm. you know, or a kind of an argument or a case being made for a particular political um, position. Mm -hmm. um, and while I think that like, you know, the author of this book, like certainly does have particular political positions and mm -hmm. partly because like, you know, Stan is like, uh, now probably known almost as well or by as many people, maybe not as many people for his, you know, the ways that he talks and thinks about, um, the environment, uh, as he is as a science fiction writer, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? And because mm -hmm. he is like quite a, you know, like he has a huge public intellectual presence in that yes. way. Um, and is really like a kind of, I feel like becomes a kind of go-to person on certain kinds of questions for that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so I, I think that there is maybe a tendency in the way that the book, I think it will be received as if it were, you know, an illustration of like a set of positions that, right. you know, are taken to be held by the author. Um, but I think the book is way more complicated than that. I mean, it'd be like really, you know, um, it's not that it wouldn't be interesting to to read that book, <laughs> yeah. but that book would not be, um, oh, I don't know. Uh, it wouldn't be like a, um, a novel <laughs> mm -hmm. and it certainly wouldn't be utopian, at least not in the mode in which I think that Stan is a utopian, you know, like... Um, which is about like, you know, uh, 
uh, opening up kind of like horizons of possibility and or orientations toward horizons. So I think that that, just like saying that I think that the, um, that there are chapters in here in which you get like, you know, uh, here's a list of all of the creatures that are going extinct, or right. here are all of the ways in which um, people have made attempts to calculate um, what constitutes happiness. Mm -hmm. And here is how all of those attempts to constitute happiness have been like, um, you know, done only through like the sort of disciplinary, in all senses, lens of economics, right? Mm -hmm. Like, despite those chapters, like, this is not like, um, I don't think this book is an argument. I think it mm. is like uh, unfolding a bunch of kinds of possibilities um, for, for you as Matt, as you were just saying, like to really think about, you mm -hmm. know, like, um, and to think about them in sort of like tough and difficult ways, the toughest and most difficult being like, you know, the book is just like not this, not allowing you to uh, think, okay, all this is kind of out there. It's going to come. Maybe it is happening, you mm -hmm. know, uh, you know, apocalypse down the road, blah, blah, mm -hmm. blah, 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 that kind of stuff. Like instead, like the force of the book is to just like keep throwing you into these situations and these moments of like kind of political, ethical um, quandary, yeah. I think, right? Dilemma, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. I think as I was reading it too, you know, especially by the end of the book, by the second half of it, as I was really immersed in the book and trying to have a, you know, come to a more holistic understanding of it. And I won't, this was no spoilers or anything. I really started to think about who his audience is or who he envisions his audience to be. And for me, it's really interesting to think about in, in relation to the character, Mary, who uh, at one of these events, he mentioned, you know, that his hero, the hero in this book or the heroes in it are bureaucrats, you know, and that's a fun thing to think about, right? Um, that, you know, heroes in movies tend to be guys with guns. Um, the hero in this book, you know, and the we solve problems by violence. And here the, the hero is somebody who... Uh, has to do just take a bunch of meetings and argue things very persuasively to people who have like real power. Um, and so in terms of like who the audience is for this book, I think that's a really interesting question to ask because it doesn't feel like the audience is like adolescent boys, right? Uh, it doesn't feel like the audience is... Um, sort of, uh, yeah, like, yeah, that's all I can think of. <laughs> Adolescent boys who might be interested in science fiction, like, like who are the people who are going to be sort of challenged by and receptive to these ideas of having a sort of almost unabashedly technocratic, you know, uh, solution, set of solutions or policies to these um, ineluctable problems, right? Um, and, uh so yeah, I mean, I think that that's um, a kind of interesting thing to think about too, and and, and will be really telling uh, in terms of like the reception, the overall reception to the book, as far as like the people who are reading it and um, may respond to it in different ways, um, as far as that goes. I guess that I'm not like, you know, I I'm not far enough into it to yet see that that like the sort of bureaucracy mm. um, is kind of like 
you know, valorized or, mm-hmm. or heroized in it. I mean, it's like one of the things that we're being asked to think about, but at least at the point that I'm at, mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. I don't see it as like the solution, but rather a kind of like, you know, um, yeah, I, but rather like one sort of like place among many where like um, things are getting worked out or posited or attempted. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that that's probably bet the less said about that, the better until you, until we get farther into it. And um, like, I wouldn't, yeah. Anyway, I, I would say t- I would, yeah, there's no, the book offers no simple solutions. Um, and it's not, it's definitely not like um, rose colored in terms of how bureaucracies can solve all problems or something like that. So um but 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 the but the main character being um uh a kind of middle-aged female bureaucrat i think is um worth holding in mind a lot um i should say while we're on that topic like the other the way we we're going to try to divide up this season of the podcast is by following the kind of st- story that unfolds between Frank and Mary, because this is not really a spoiler, um, especially if you've read more than, I mean, up through the, the, especially the section that, um, or maybe a little bit past the section that we are going to stop at today, but that there's a red thread throughout the book that is both Frank and Mary, and they come back together, um, at various points throughout the book. Um, and so that's kind of how we're going to we're hoping to divide up the episodes is by um, those chunks, like what happens between their um, their meetings. That won't always be the case in terms of how we divide it up. But um, uh, for the most part, um, that that kind of gives us a good sort of grounding, a human grounding in uh, how to divide up our episodes and our reading of the book. And we're also, of course, going to track these other types of chapters and stories too, like the more tech, again, sort of like technical discussions of, you know, whatever, how the market works, how nature is doing, um, and the various kinds of like refugees and sort of other sort of personal um, anonymous first person um uh, sections that kind of give a kind of uh, picture of how other people are experiencing both the 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 well the political turmoil that is kind of triggered by the climate um, crisis, right? Um, so we might, I mean, so maybe we could just think a little bit about um, the the very first chapter and then um, the second chapter as a way of so that we can talk a bit about what we feel mm. like we're sort of um we're seeing and how the book is kind of um moving um it seems like it'd be it's kind of useful to think about the way in which in the um like in the mars books um you know uh chapters have like the the chapters are focalized through particular characters um 
And frequently or always they have some kind of like prologue section that I can't even remember what we called those sections. It's not focalized to the character, but sets up certain kinds of things or sometimes has like a weirder relationship, um, you know, to the book um, than that. You know, it's like not obvious how it's setting things up Mm -hmm. exactly. Um, And, you know, uh, and here again, certain of the chapters are kind of, it's not totally like focalized through, but I guess focalized through some characters, um, particularly Frank and Frank, who we meet in the first chapter and Mary. Mm -hmm. Um, Although in both cases, I think we get a strong sense of, um, uh, you know, we're both brought into and have a certain distance from their point of view, because Frank, at least as we meet him after this first chapter, um, is a deeply traumatized mm-hmm. person and his trauma, his PTSD um, and his attempts to cope with it are like strongly, not just, not just thematized, but become part of the way in which the book is asking questions about like agency and what it means to act and what the relationship between act and thinking, acting and thinking is, for example. Um, and the Mary chapters are strongly, I mean, while they are, about her they're really about her as a person who has a particular kind of job Um, and and like as you already said a lot of her job is about having to go to meetings with other people and so there's a way in which like um you know if we both like learn a lot about frank but in some ways feel a little distant from him because aspects of his mental processing are not totally accessible to us or to him right like there, there's a sim- oddly a kind of resonance with Mary, who yeah. is clearly a highly rational person, but who has to be constantly sort of playing this role. And we only see these little glimpses of mm-hmm. her, her own sense of things or her own position, because her role is really like this kind of facilitation role. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think so. This is something that I find. I mean, we've talked before about how you know something that I think is good about science fiction and lets it do all kinds of things is it's not obsessed with the idea that like psychology is like how you, you know, that like the the most interesting thing in the world is like psychology or like quote unquote character. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and, you know, and yet despite that, like, you know, Stan is somebody who, who's actually very good at writing characters. And I think probably all of us, when we think about like, um, you know, when we think about the Mars books, like, right. you know, we think about Frank and Maya and, you know, like, um, uh, and Nadia, you know, those people, those people, those, those people are characters. Those characters right. are, are people, uh-huh. you know, um, and, and I think part of the sort of mode, or at least part of my kind of response to, you know, again, like only like the first 200 pages of the book, um, is that there's that, that something that the book is quite interested in is um, uh, are sort of like things that produce a sense of distance, like mm-hmm. distance, fr- you know, that one is distant mm. in some ways, or you know, perhaps separated from, or even alienated from other people, or a problem, or uh, the world itself, you know. Um, so all that is like a long, rambly way to say the the first chapter of the book is like um in intensely full of incident and is like quite horrifying yeah um and 
is one of the more just like you're really like thrown into the immediacy of things um, in a very, very intense way. Um, and then I think you're kind of taken aback. I mean, I'm, my feeling on reading it was like, uh, I was really taken aback that it was only 12 pages long. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and 12 super intense pages. And then all of a sudden um, in chapter two, I'm just like in this very, very different mode that it's like really hard to process. And then in chapter three, yet another mode that, yeah. you know. Um, and so th there's something that is like... Um, you know, again, I think that like these are kinds of techniques that like um, appear in others of Stan's novels, mm -hmm. um, but it's really, in, but they here do a kind of work of estrangement, this kind of like science fictional estrangement um, in a way that I think is really um, fascinating and, uh, and, you know, almost like a kind of like jarring mm -hmm. quality too. Yeah. Yeah, there's um no, I think that's great. I mean, like I think the the um yeah, extremely jarring. Like the first chapter is just Good so Lord. I mean, like somebody when I think on Facebook or something was re was saying or maybe he said it actually on one of the events uh, or maybe Naomi Klein said, actually it was Naomi Klein. She was like, I, I made the mistake of reading the first chapter right before bed and then I couldn't sleep, you know? And yeah, that would be a mistake. You don't want to start this book um, <laughs> in bed when you're trying to go to sleep because Not, no. that is no. the most harrowing. I can't think of a more harrowing sort of chapter in the books of stands that we've read at this point. I mean, maybe like, you know, the death of Frank in Mar in Red Mars or something or or Anne surviving the avalanche or something like that. But the, this first chapter is so just grabs you by the throat. Um, and then, yeah, the, and, and then the distancing effect of chapter two, mm -hmm. which is a riddle about the sun, you know, and this yeah. just kind of like, um, just, uh, a riddle about the sun. That's also this incredible warning. Um, I get, you know, like, um, I keep you alive. Someday I will eat you. I mean, it's just like mm -hmm. terrifying. Um, mm -hmm. And also because it's so um, uh, in a certain way, like real and just factual, like yeah. there's <laughs> yeah, no yeah. escaping the, the clear reality of that. And this is something that I noticed or that I started to take note of um, when I started rereading the book too is and something that we've talked about and seen in lots of his novels before is the discourse within the novels about the status of metaphor and analogy yeah. um, and, and their, their necessity, but also their inability to do the job that they that they purport to do. And it's related to the um, status of ideology and related to the cognitive dissonance um, and, and, uh, uh, and those kinds of things that he talks about later in the book, but even on the first page and, and throughout uh, in a couple other spots in the first mm -hmm. um, chapter, there are these moments of when analogy and metaphor just completely break down. So toward the bottom of page one, uh, the sun cracked the Eastern horizon. It blazed like an atomic bomb, which of course it was right. Mm -hmm. And then on page eight, there's a moment, um, in the morning, the sun again rose like the blazing furnace of heat that it was. Mm -hmm. uh, the generator was still ch chuntering along, 
uh, in its irregular two-stroke, the AC box was still vibrating like the band bad fan it was, right? So there, we're in this kind of world where metaphor is just completely unnecessary or um, the kind of effect you might get from using a metaphor is... Um, your pales in comparison to the simple raw description of what the thing is in real life, like the reality of the thing. And to me that like brings home that the, his, the kind of mantra of science fiction is the realism of our time because we live in it, because the reality we live in is science fictional. Um, uh, I think that the, that that kind of strategy, which I don't, know if he follows throughout the rest of the book but it's definitely like foregrounded in this first chapter um and again like comes back uh when he talks about what when he gives the 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 definition of ideology in chapter yep. 11 um yeah. that 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 this is something that is really also um clearly a topic of the book um is facing reality without the veneer or without the kind of filter of creating metaphors that make things easier to take right that that there's a kind of like just necess necessity of facing the real problem in order to to um, address it with the full knowledge that ideology is un you know you can't escape ideology and it's actually fully necessary to have but there are better ideologies than others i suppose yeah, I mean, that's such a, um, I think that's a really interesting observation because the, I mean, for one, because I think that the, um, you know, this, I, I mean, I don't think, uh, this is not something we can probably follow up on now, mm -hmm. um, but maybe by the time we get to the end of the book, we will be able to. But I think the status of this book as science fiction is actually kind of an interesting, yeah. I think that's kind of an interesting question, but that, you know, um, uh, you know, one one sort of like claim um, about science fiction is that it, you know, literalizes or materializes the metaphoric, right? Mm. Um, uh, and I, I think that, that um, that's the kind of idea that I think, you know, like often in Stan's novels, I mean, I think like Aurora is a great example of this, you know, there's this very sort of like explicit kind of like play with thinking about like, what are narrative techniques, right? And what are the ways in which we have ideas? And right. like, why do we have to have, why do we have ideas like through figuration of various kinds? Um, and, and, and here, I think it's true that the sort of maybe, you know, what we've described in various ways as like a kind of bluntness is also um, what you were just sort of describing as a kind of like in your faceness or an asking mm. you to face something mm -hmm. and you know and at the same time the book is deeply about as you said like not only through explicitly through its discussion of ideology which i guess like if you're not like a person who you know is um the kind of like you know nerd that you and i happen to both be who's <laughs> like oh it's like oh, let's talk about altazir now um you know like if that's not your if that's like not your vibe you like, mean the coolest kind of person there the is the coolest kind of person there is the kind of person who's read altazir um uh you, oh, just sidebar. I had a very charming conversation in Zoom office hours, of course, Zoom office hours with a student who was telling me a lot about their, like the things that they were into. Mm -hmm. um, and 
they were like, you know, I, I, I'm really interested in the idea of, um, well, okay, do you know what I mean if I say <laughs> the ISAs? <laughs> Which is j just for those of you who are not laughing, that's like a an an idea from uh, Althusser's famous essay on, on ideology. Which this person is in a class with me, in which on the syllabus it is clear that I will be lecturing on that essay in like two weeks. And I was like, normally when a student says something like that, I'm just like. You know, oh yeah, yeah, I have heard of that. But it was so funny that they were yeah. saying it that I just like started laughing, and then they were like, "Oh, I guess you probably do know about that." It's like <laughs> I was like, "Yeah." Glad like, to hear you. Glad to <laughs> glad to know you've read the syllabus. <laughs> they were really, they were really like lovely student, and it was a great conversation. But it was just such a funny moment, which I thought, like, is there a plausible world in which I like made the syllabus and I was like. Guess I'll figure out what Althusser says in that essay, like a little closer to how to teach it. I mean, I guess some people do teach that way. Who knows? Anyway, I do. Knows? <laughs> I do. I do, but I, I don't. I don't do that with theoretical texts. No, yeah, I definitely yeah, exactly. do it with like historical text. But um, did what? Did the student? Uh, were, were they excited to know that Althusser was in fact on the syllabus, and you'd be discussing yes. ISAs in a couple? Yes, of weeks? And, I, and yeah, and I was like, I will be really excited to talk to you again after that, so that then. And, you know, I can hear what, you know, like, you know, how your interpretation works with the interpretation I'm going to give. Nice. They were very appealing, very appealing person. Um, what was I saying? Oh, You're yeah, saying yeah. something about so, ideology. So, you know, I don't, I don't know what it looks like when you like read that stuff about ideology when you don't already have a context for it. But I kind of think it, it becomes part of, I mean, and actually the book does some kind of like explanatory work, including like linking that idea of ideology to, um, you know, the kinds of ideas about like um, necessary cognitive errors, right, right, um, right. which, you know, um, which has come up, comes up in Aurora a lot, for mm -hmm. example, right? Um, but so like... Um, at the same time as we're getting this kind of like bluntness or this sense of like factuality and beginning this first chapter, which is about, you know, it's about mass death. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, as, as at the same time as we're being able to face something, we're also being asked to ask ourselves some questions about what it means to face something or whether like, um, or whether there is some like um, obvious way in which like the sort of large scale problems of like climate change or the destruction of the environment could be faced, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So like, I think that that, um, yeah, there's just like this really interesting kind of like back and forth there. Um, like, uh, and that first chapter is just, uh, it's it is, harrowing. It's, it's it's truly harrowing. It's truly harrowing. It made me think of the um, that great um, book by Mike Davis called uh, mm -hmm. "Late Victorian Holocaust." Victorian Holocausts. Late Victorian Holocausts. I still haven't read it. I've owned it for many years, and I was saving it as a treat to read <laughs> after I finished my dissertation. But somehow, I never got around to it. Uh, it's a real treat because it's about uh, the ways in which um, the British Empire plus like shifting climate patterns produces math, mass mm -hmm. death in the Indian subcontinent. Mm -hmm. um, but that's another really interesting thing that we haven't talked about here, which is that, um, oh, yeah. uh, you know, 
this so we did you know we said at the beginning like this is a novel that's really interested in uneven development it's really interested specifically in global uneven development and the long histories that produce global uneven development um uh it's quite interested in i mean it's kind of interesting that we just did uh years of rice and salt yeah um, because of the role that india plays Mm -hmm. here um you know this kind of like transformative role that at least that it plays in the first part of the the book mm-hmm. um but but this book is also like i think uh quite uh intensely about empire and and like the long legacy of the british empire yeah um and the ongoing effects of american empire yeah um and and the sort of like um what what do we call it like the the like the coming together of or the unity of um american empire and um and global capital right Mm -hmm. um particularly the monetary system like that's like um banking and the monetary system is like a particular you know is the place where this this book is doing a lot of its kind of like work and thinking but so you know the chapter is both this like um you know we're with this young man named frank like i feel like like a lot of characters and a lot of kim stanley robinson novels his name is frank um and it it seems like it's really important at least to the point that i've read that we don't know what agency he's working for yeah yeah yeah. Um he's working for some kind of development agency but we don't know what it is. Yeah. Um we know he's an American. Yep. Um we know that he is like sensitive enough that he feels embarrassed that his Hindi is so bad and that he can't speak any of the regional languages that people are speaking. Yeah. Um you know um but we don't know a ton about him, you know, like he could be, I mean, he could be a missionary, he could be working for an NGO, like none of that is given to us. Um, and when, uh, after he has made his like sort of valiant attempt to like get the air conditioning going and to try to keep like the group of people who can like fit into the building that he's in alive after he's done that, um, which is an attempt that's clearly going to fail no matter what. Um, and a bunch of like people break in with a gun and take the generator. Um, one of this is on page nine. Um, one of them says, one of the men holding Frank yeah. down, let him go. We need this more than you do. One of them explained, like, you know, mm-hmm. um, even in this moment of kind of like, you know, alarming violence, people are just saying, explaining things yeah, right? Right. um uh, the man with the gun scowled as he heard this he pointed the gun at frank one last time you did this he said and then they slammed the door on him and were gone um and like we don't know what that refers to in that moment um but it actually sets us up for the way in which this is a book about asking questions about you know like if it is actually the case that we know um, like where the blame lies for right. the situation that we're in um, and that we both know where it lies in terms of like what nation state it lies the most with, like what form of empire it lies the most with. And also as we begin to get into later, like what actually existing human beings it lies the most with, right? And, you know, like if it is actually possible to know those things, um, you know, what do we do about that, right? Um 
and this this moment which like the the moment of having the gun held at him and being told that he's to blame like i think we see that frank like internalizes that as part of the rest of his trauma you know there's a like he has a guilt um that he carries with him a guilt for having survived um a guilt for you know not having done the right thing at the time even though Mm -hmm. it really seems like there's absolutely nothing that he can do because the situation is so overwhelming but that's just this little like narrative moment in this first chapter um that then like has so many you know like resonates resonates like on multiple different like analytic levels throughout the rest of the book um which you know that is to say that like the book feels blunt but is actually like i think very subtle in some ways (laughs) extremely sharp because i think another way in which going off of what you were saying sort of like you know one of the only things we really know about frank is that he's an american and this book spends a very small amount of time in america and with americans and to me, this also kind of raises a question about the audience and how the book lands among its, not in necessarily intended audience, but presumed audience and factual, like its de facto audience. Like if it's going to be a mostly American audience reading this, you know, um, the natural American narcissism of wanting to see Americans uh, represented and either like, you know, and, and be heroes or be demonized, like uh, flat, like self-flagellating ourselves through narrative or whatever is not necessarily satisfied in this book. And we're confronted with that right away where Frank is a character who, you know, the guy says, you did this me. And we can, as you know, reading a novel, we can recognize that that is, sort of a, a, a loaded moment that it's kind of, again, sort of metaphorical, like Frank stands in for the American empire. But it's also one that I think we as Americans, uh, are as conscientious uh, people, as socialists, as communists, as like eco-communists, right? Um, <laughs> can recognize really. And also, but mm-hmm. at the same time, we're confronted with the fact that like, you know, you did this, okay, yeah, but I didn't do anything. I just got here like as an individual. (laughs) And there's, and there's also like nothing I can do as an individual to ameliorate this. So the question of blame, the question of like who did what to whom and whose empire is responsible for for all this stuff having happened. And then who, and then who and how and what agencies and what, um, or who has agency and what agencies have agency and who who can do what to fix this or ameliorate it or anything like that. Um, those are the question. Those are the radically open questions, radically utopian questions that this book demands that we ask. And I think that's kind of what's so exciting about it because yeah, again, as like, as the book goes on and, and just within the section that we're talking about the chunk, the first 24 chapters, uh, chapter 17 is that Socratic dialogue about who enacts the world's economy. You know, what is an actor network and what what are the actors within that network where we can put pressure on uh, to effect change? And um, it's not always people. It doesn't satisfy our desire for psychological, like psychological realism, where if one person can see the light, mm-hmm. uh, then, you know, the sun will come out and everything will be fine. Uh in, in that chapter, money is its own actor within the network. 
money, like completely depsychologicalized money, right? It has its own gravitational field that has to be um, dealt with in order to um, effectuate change, right? And so these are like really, yeah, radically uncomfortable positions for a reader who, especially a conscientious reader who wants to do something. Uh, these are really uncomfortable positions to be placed in, I think, in a really it's, productive and like important way. It seems like one of the kinds of, so uh, um, no way, nowhere are we getting through talking about no. Um, the section we said we were going to talk about. Well, I don't know. Okay. <laughs> good, but, good, uh, good. More episodes. Yay. But, uh, um, cause I'm just like looking at, I'm like, but, but, but we should say, we should say something about this and this, but, um, uh, so one of the kinds of questions, so, you know, um, One of the one of the kinds of questions that emerges so after this um, heat heat wave um, in India, where we learned that how many million people died? Twenty. Twenty million people die, um, which you know obviously we only see this like tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of right. Um, yeah. uh, and and you know so again it's the kind of like you know, once again, we're set up for the sort of like, um, can like seeing or having a sense of, or having a representation of the experience of a little piece of something, like tell us something about what the whole is like, right? right? You know, um, but the, the Indian government after, um, uh, a bunch of sort of like struggles and repercussions, you know, and we, we hear repeatedly India, largest democracy in the mm -hmm. world. Um, we have a transition in government um, and they decide to um, go ahead and do some geoengineering um, uh, to cool things, to cool things down um, and get into a kind of like debate because they're breaking the terms of the, of the UN climate accord um, to do this. And like the sort of position is you know like one well uh none of you who are saying we can't do this were there or have experienced this right you know so we have this kind of like argument from like this thing this thing happened and it happens to have happened within the boundaries of our nation state mm -hmm. and therefore we're the ones who have to like make the decision right this mm -hmm. kind of question about like what does it mean to take agency in that way um and then also you know we have laid out quite clearly um, you know, the degree to which like the countries of the global South, um, you know, bear so little responsibility for global climate change. Right. Um, and they partly bear that little responsibility um, uh, uh, quite precisely. <laughs> quite, I mean, they bear that little responsibility quite precisely because of the afterlife of empire. Right? right. So we have this kind of question. There are these questions that are awakened quite early on in the novel about reparations. Right. Um, which I think is really interesting because our, if one of the central characters is the ministry for this, the future, so-called right. this like little like group of like scientists and economists and other like smart people like convened um, as part of the, uh, as a sort of like, um, 
attempt to keep countries on track for their um, uh, goals um, mm-hmm. as laid out under the Paris Climate Accord, you know, the Ministry for the Futures, which is not their name for it, but like a like journalism, right. <laughs> a hot journalism name for it, you know, part of their sort of like brief is to be looking out for the future, for future generations of humans, um, as well as for like future generations of living things that aren't able to speak for themselves, which is interesting. And again, like makes me think a little bit about years of rice and salt and the mm-hmm. kind of like Buddhist interest in like all sentient life, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but so there, you know, we we learn as we begin to kind of like see in this first section a little bit of their like deliberations and like what they're doing and the stuff they're arguing about. Like we learn how much like not only the idea of happiness has been sort of like captured by economic rationality or supposedly can be best accounted for through a kind of economic rationality. Um, we also learn just how much like the idea of what the future is um, can only be understood through a, essentially a set of like financial transactions. Mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. You know, not just ins- not just insurance. um uh, but essentially, like, you know, forms of like betting on the future that only can measure out a certain number of gener- of generations ahead. Right. Mm-hmm. And so in this way, there's this really interesting like so that kind of focus on the future, um, you know, a future already captured under economic terms. Right. It seems like one of the things that like we might think about here is like, but what's another version of the future or why is it that that idea of like. Um, being the sort of voice for the future um, and for including for like living things that don't get to like speak, right? You know, is that at odds with that kind of like economic rationality picture of what the future is? Mm -hmm. But then we also have this idea about reparations and about the like extraordinary, like, um, you know, extraordinarily unequal global system under which we live, which is, you know, maintained, as I think the book makes clear too, by by capital. Mm-hmm. Um, so the kind of balancing of the future and the past, right? Like, you know, we can't like, um, we can't go, go backward um, in terms of like the damage that's been done to the environment. And yet the historical questions, right, and the questions of like the ways in which past injustices are making the present and thus also making the future, like is constantly there in these questions about like, what do we do to try to like preserve any future at all for Mm us? Um, Which is just, you know, like, I, I think that that's so that's such an anyway, it's a really like interesting and difficult kind of thing to think about these like demands that are actually like pretty close to being unreconcilable or unsolvable. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, particularly, yes, as you say, within the framework in which we are, you know, the, the ideological framework that we are forced to think through these things, which is predominantly the, the economic one, um, the one, you know, like that, you know, we need an ideology. Ideology is a necessary thing. Um, and we might say that we don't get to choose the ideology that we uh, see the world through or that we uh, live in the world within. Um, and it just so happens to be the case that capital uh, is the is the one that we're stuck with. And we have to figure out, is it possible to create a new relationship to the world and to the past and the future that out of the one that we're sort of stuck in, the one, um, the capitalist one, the economic one. 
Well, and speaking of your line about the, um, you know, what's happening with metaphor, where, God, I have, I have so many post-it notes in here. I stopped putting <laughs> post-it notes on this thing because I just, because it's just, it would be too many. It's like I'm making a, I'm making it into like a porcupine. Yeah. Um, but, but we get the um, reference to, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capital. Do you right. remember where is that, that is? Is it in IDEA? Uh, I got it. Where is it? It's, it is in, it's page uh, 25, which is in uh, section six. Um, Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, for a while, therefore, it looked like the great heat wave would be like mass shootings in the United States, mourned by all, deplored by all, and then immediately forgotten or superseded by the next one. I mean, just like, you know, like bitter reflections there um, until they came in a daily drumbeat and became the new normal. It looked quite possible that the same thing would happen with this event, the worst week in human history. How long would that stay true about being the worst week? Uh, man. (laughs) And what could anyone do about it? (laughs) Is he? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That could be, that's a, that is a Uh uh, uh, evergreen tweet right there. (laughs) Evergreen tweet. Exactly. And what could anyone do about it? Easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. The old, the old saying, I love that. That's just become an old saying. The old saying had grown teeth and was taking on a literal vicious accuracy. I mean, like, uh, just like a great line, you know, grown teeth, literal. Yeah, right. <laughs> so good. Um, yeah. Yeah. I forget why I went there, but yeah, there you go. Um, I think too, one thing as we're, now that we're sort of moving, <laughs> moving ahead a little bit uh, incrementally on um, another one of the chapters that um, is kind of one of these just sort of, um, you know, factual essays, little brief things. The one one that 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 and this early stage are like really setting the groundwork for what we're working with here. Um, section eight that lays out, you know, what we're burning, what we can afford to burn, what's mm-hmm. left in the ground, what's the value of that in terms of dollars, and then how do you, you know, ad- address that problem that. Um, some of it just simply has to be a stranded asset. We have to figure out what to do with that. You know, the list of the organizations uh, that will be doing the burning uh, in terms of their size, always important to remember that, you know, these big organizations uh, burn almost all the fossil fuels that are burnt, not like human beings, but not individuals. Um, But then the last um, paragraph of that on page 30, I think is just so important. Yeah. And so also difficult, right? Uh, especially for somebody who wants to put themselves in the position of Frank or somebody who wants to put themselves in the position of being morally outraged uh, or you know, you know, grabbing your friend from high school who's now an investment banker or like a military contractor and saying, you're a bad person or whatever. No, this is not how it works. <clears throat> and I think it's so important too, the way that, the realism that Stan writes in that mode of realism is, you know, defiantly sort of realistic as opposed to kind of melodramatic where there aren't villains here. There are functionaries. There are people who perform roles in a system Mm -hmm. that they find themselves within. Um, And so 
you know, that the executive decisions for these organizations actions will be made by about 500 people. They will be good people, patriotic politicians concerned for the fate of their beloved nation citizens, mm. conscientious, hardworking corporate executives fulfilling their obligations to their board and their shareholders, men for the most part, family men for the most part, well-educated, well-meaning, pillars of the community, givers to charity. When they go to the concert hall of an evening, their hearts will stir at the somber majesty of Brahms' Fourth Symphony. They will want the best for their children. Now, like we could debate whether their hearts will stir at the somber majesty of Brahms' Fourth Symphony. I don't think that they will because I think they're all Philistines, but that's just me. Like <laughs> here, he's sort of giving them the benefit of the doubt. Like, these people are people too. And you can't just assume that they're villains if you're going to actually like address, you know, address the problem in a kind of realistic manner, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I think I read this, I, yeah, I read this a bunch of, a bunch of times too. And it is this, you know, um, uh, yeah. I mean, I think that this is a really, this is like a really interesting kind of problem, but I think one way that you could read this passage is actually, um, you know, is actually thinking about ideology, right? Yes, because, yeah, for sure. So what what makes them good people? Right, well, right, they're right. Patri patriotic politicians. I right. mean, and already I feel like, mm -hmm. yeah, right, right. Uh, Hardworking corporate executives. <sighs> oh, uh huh. Yeah, right. Um, you know, fulfilling their obligations in the first place, their board and their shareholders, men, family men, right? And they want the best for their children, right? Mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. know, like. Um, uh, concerned for the fate of their beloved nation's citizens. I mean, like, you know, like that, that is ideology. Yeah. Right? Yeah. 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 I mean, so, yeah. So I think you're, I mean, I think that the kind of, uh, you know, the, the question is partly like, okay. I mean, it is, it is true. Like that list of corporations, right. You know, Saudi Aramco, Chevron, Gazprom, mm -hmm. ExxonMobil, et cetera, et cetera. Like, um, you know, that is where the damage is being done. Right. Right. Um, and like, you know, uh, and as long as they exist, like they're not, they're not going to not be, um, you know, uh, doing the same damage that they're doing now. Right. right. Um, and then we have this kind of question of like, oh, well, so do the executives who make the decisions, do they stand in for the corporation? Right. This kind of goes back to you talking right, about right. that, like, you know, like, um, uh, impersonal agency mm -hmm. or like the agency of non-humans or whatever, um, you know, do they stand in for the corporations? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, if you could just like kill off those people, did the corporations die? Right. Well, and, and there the answer is probably not right. Mm -hmm. Like, mm -hmm. um, but on the other hand is like the problem with like pondering whether the world might be a better place if we got rid of those people is the problem that they're actually just good people. Right. Um, because like, you know, um, so, I mean, and this is like a kind of like, um, uh, you know, really in some ways this does take us back to the question of like, you know, you know, to the question of like, so if, if, if one version of ideology is this is just like how we make sense of things, right? And right. we can call that ideology and it comes not from our ideas, but just from the what we have to do in order to live. Right. right? We have to live. We can't not make sense of the world. Like right. that is just right. like how we know, 
you know, that you're Matt and I'm Hillary and neither one of us is like the same as our computer or the walls or whatever, you right. know, like we, right. <laughs> and how sometimes we get it's hard to distinguish. And, but yeah. and sometimes it's hard to distinguish. Exactly. Um, you know, so would you, would you, you know, and, and that hard to distinguish might be partly why this book is also interested in, mm-hmm. in PTSD and mm-hmm. in, in like mental illness too. Right. But so um, you know, so there's that a kind of ideology that can make it seem like, okay, well, it is necessary, right? You know, this is a kind of necessary thing that we need in order to be able to function. We have to have like this sense-making apparatus um, that organizes stuff for us, that organizes and categorizes and prioritizes and hierarchizes and those kinds of things, right? Um, but of course, the you know, the way that we get that sense-making apparatus um, and the way that it is like perpetuated is because like it lets us just like keep living in the way that we have to live, which like under capital means like actually keeping capital going, right? right. You know, um, by investing ourselves in like um, the skills and the know-how and the practices and the institutional life that we live in by like going to school, you know, mm-hmm. and learning how to like. Uh, sit still and like uh, only speak when you're spoken to or you know know who is the important person and who's the unimportant person or whatever whatever it may be so then like you know um so in that version of things it's like well um you know fine to think that like you could like just I'm just (laughs) fine to think that you could just like kill off the 500, like, you know, most important executives. Um, But there's just always like more people coming to take their place because like that is precisely because, you know, capital has shown itself to be quite good at perpetuating itself in certain ways. Like that's one version of it, you know, like which, you know, the version of it that says like, yeah, you can you can figure out who like the top people at Chevron are, but even if you take them out, like there are a bunch of other dudes who are like functionally the same as those dudes who are just gonna like move into their place. So you haven't done anything, right? Right. Um but then another version of it is like which I think we, you know, we see some some kind of thinking about, like particularly once we we get to the idea of like um you know, operating outside of the rule of law mm-hmm. um, in this book is like, if you can like, you know, uh, like throw enough wrenches into the works, mm-hmm. right? You can cause a kind of crisis that can do more than um, uh, than your attempts to like reform reform a system that is like kind of inherently mm-hmm. unreformable or is so just like so large scale, it's like extremely hard to grasp it, right? And that seems to be like one of the kinds of problems, like, you know, it's like not a simple question about like whether a single person has agency or like, you know, <laughs> like Frodo Baggins can throw the ring into the <laughs> fires of Mount Doom or whatever, you know, like, yeah. uh, I was about to say Bilbo Baggins, but I corrected myself. Oh man, Frodo. Hillary. <laughs> Whoa, you must got canceled. Uh, you know, whether Harry Potter can throw the ring of power into the fires of Mount yeah. Doom or not, but you know, like, um, you know, it's not that kind of question. And yet at the same time, like, I just, I feel like this is like such a like stand thing. Like, yeah. it's like, it won't let you get away from also thinking about that kind of individual yeah. problem. Yeah, too. for sure. And I think that that paragraph like reads both ways. Exactly. Like it's very well aware, obviously of like the, the ideological component of it. Um, and then also like, I, I can't help but think too, that, um, you know, 
that version of, okay, so uh, maybe if I kill one guy or even if I kill 500 guys, it's not going to make a difference. But maybe if I kill 501 guys or, or you know, <laughs> if we or if, if there's mm. enough wrenches thrown in, that still requires the person doing that act to get to the point where they believe that this person, you know, regardless of whether they're a good person or not should be, you know, killed or something. You know right. what I mean? So, you know, it still is, it's still an ideological, it, that itself is an ideological problem right. of, of the act of the actor of whatever you want to call it, eco-terrorism or water protection or whatever, bringing themselves to the point where they can perform an act like that. And then the question of that, you know, that Frank embodies what kind of experience would a person have to go through for them to get to the point where they would say, I will kill a person because of this, right? right. I will right. commit the ultimate crime or whatever against a single person because I know that the crimes that that single person is responsible for, maybe not that they're committing, but is responsible for far outweigh the value of that one single individual's life, no matter how much money they give to charity or how much they love Brahms, right? Right, 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 right. And that question that I think comes up a bunch of times in the you know, gets posited a bunch of times in the question of like, what is the future or like who owns the future, mm -hmm. you know, which is like, um, you know, they will want the best for their children. Right. Yes. I mean, and we have the, this kind of like, uh, you know, as it, as it turns out, like wanting the best for like your children is not at all the same as wanting the best for like right. all children, much less all people and, you know, like all, <laughs> right. all you know, sentient creatures, right? right. Like, um, yeah, and that's what, um, that's also the problem of ideology as well, because as we see sort of, I think it's right in the next chapter, as Mary meets, um, in, at one one at, at one moment with Badim and then the next moment with um, Tatiana, mm -hmm. um, they can they she has these discussions about justice, legality, and the, like the law, and then this kind of throwaway thing, which becomes bigger later on, um, that Tatiana suggests that we need a new religion, like some kind of Earth religion, so that there needs to be some kind of new ideology that we create or maybe resurrect or something that could, you know, that could infect the the consciousness in a way so that the concern for your, for one's children would be a more universal concern for all children, that somehow the ministry for the future, I think it's interesting that it's a ministry, right, um, could be involved in like effectuating that kind of worldview uh, that would be uh, a more sort of capacious understanding of like, you know, what would be involved in saving the world and what kind of a mission that would be and what kind of people we would need to become um, and what kind of ideology we we would have to adopt in order to 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 make that happen. Yeah, I mean, and we see, I mean, we see that also in the like, I mean, the place where we see the formation of something like that seems to be with the um, with the Indian people who decide that they're going to take direct action outside right. the system, you know, um, the children Kali's, of Kali, the children of Kali, right? Who, you know, like, so taking like, um, taking this like, um, figure from Hinduism, like, um, reawakening, repossessing something, but there's, a, there is an idea there about something that like, um, 
you know, crosses over or, or transcends like, um, nation and family and all of these other kinds of units, right? right? You know, that there's a signing, there's a signing on to something that's like bigger. And that actually, you know, makes me, I mean, obviously like that, uh, you know, um, that conversation that Mary and Tatiana have, you know, I, of course it makes me think of Dorsa Brevia, right? It makes me right. think of the like Minoan matriarchy, right, right. Um, you know, or, or of, or of Hiroko and Veriditas, right? right, right like, right. you know, or, or the like presence of like, uh, you know, Shinto ideas in the Mars, uh, mm-hmm. in the Mars books as one of the places where, you know, um, there's a kind of like, um, you know, reaching toward like um, variations on like the spiritual as a way of getting at the transpersonal, um, uh, you know, like uh, this kind of production of, um, uh, you know, this kind of production of like, you know, co-feeling like through something right. that doesn't have to be located in any indi- in any individual. Um, I was also thinking in this chapter um, on... 34 um when she's when mary's having that conversation with badim um she says okay maybe you're right maybe there's no such thing as justice in the sense of some kind of real reparation of a wrong no eye for an eye no matter what right um especially historical justice or climate justice and like yeah those the the ways in which those two things map onto each other i think is quite interesting right um, but over the long haul, in some rough sense, that's what we have to try for. That's what our ministry is about. We're trying to set things up so that in the future, over the long haul, something like justice will be will get created. Some long-term ledger of more good than bad, bending the arc and all that. No matter what's happened before, that's what we can do now. Um, you know, and it made me think about, like, I mean, on the one hand, I find that, like, uh, you know, a moving and plausible thing to say. And on the other mm-hmm. hand, it made me think about when we were talking about Born in Flames and mm-hmm. how much that movie is about, like, um, you know, what what happens when, when, like, certain, like, groups can be told, well, we'll, we'll get to your concerns, but you're going to have to wait, right? Right? <laughs> right? You know, like, oh, it's got to, over the long haul, something like justice, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. like... Um, and there's a way, you know, there's a way in which like that kind of, um, you know, there's something about her answer there that sounds like, like doable. Um, but it also doesn't sound like justice, you right. know, <laughs> Yeah. and it doesn't sound like the kind of thing that if you were a person who like lived in a place where 20 million people had just died, um, because of an intense heat wave, um, that was caused by you know how many uh, 19, 19 right. corporations and right. another five hundred people or whatever it doesn't right. particularly sound like you would buy that story right yeah you know yeah yeah <clears throat> and she brings this up with Tatiana after that uh, who's the lawyer uh, the the head of the ministry's legal division who and they have a conversation about international law which Tatiana despite being a uh, lawyer is extremely skeptical of international law um, because on 36 nations agree to them uh, only if they like their judgments, these international courts judgments always side with one side or the other. So the losing side is never pleased and there's no sheriff for the world. So the U S does what it wants and the rest of us also do what we want. 
the courts only work when some petty war criminal gets caught and everyone decides to look virtuous. Um, I like that idea. I mean, you know, that's an interesting idea, the no sheriff for the world, right? And if this were a Western or something, we could expect somebody to come strolling into town and set everybody straight. But that's not how, that's a fantasy, obviously. Um, but then, uh, but then there's also just the falling back on the rule of law is all we've got. And this is a feature, I don't know. I mean, I think it's, you know, de probably definitely a feature of most of Stan's novels. I don't know if it's always in every one of them, but the kind of falling back on the rule of law, like this is, you know, they're, they're, you know, without the rule of law, then, then we're in real big trouble. So we have to somehow make it work. Um, and what's interesting here is that the lawyer Tatiana, uh, who brings up the rule of law also sort of also is the one to bring up the idea mm -hmm. that we need, uh, some kind of new earth religion, everyone, family, universal brotherhood, because the law is nothing without a kind of belief system behind it to sort of back it up, uh, that people just internalize and don't have to think about, um, that they kind of, or maybe that they do think about, but in different, in a different mode or something like that. Yeah. And I was just thinking about the, um, so in, uh, in Aurora, right. Mm -hmm. You know, um, ship does, uh, talk about themselves right. as, as the sheriff in right. that after they are like, I am, you know, yell, I am the rule of law. And right. like, but also like, you know, I, I, when we talked about that, like one of the things that we talked about is at the same time as ship asserts that it is the rule of law, it also like, um, you know, acts with the power of the state, right? right. Like, you know, because it takes like violent action that like, you know, right. deafens people and locks people locks right. people up and makes people pass out and then forget things if necessary. Um, which, you know, I think like, uh, I mean, here my sense is that like when the rule of law is invoked, like, you know, that we are supposed to think like, yes, better the rule of law than the, like, than the, the chaos of like, um, uh, you know, whatever, like a glow attempts to like, just like assassinate everybody mm -hmm. who, you know, um, holds the largest amount of personal blame for the situation or whatever. Um, but then also I think it's complicated because of course, um, uh, you know, the, the rule of law, like that idea of law, like, um, you know, at some point Mary is like, well, law, you know, we, we figure out how to have, we, how we have to, change laws right that's why we have to like work on legislators right, because right. the point is we've got to get new laws and that means changing laws right i mean so the rule of law is like what does that describe you know it mm -hmm. describes some way of holding people together in some kind of agreement you know so i was thinking about like the constitution of mars right mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. and part of how the constitution of mars works is that it provides like a big structure that holds some things together and that includes some legal stuff and it's specifically the legal stuff is about the environment as a way of negotiating like conflicting um ways of understanding like the planet and like environmental priorities um, but the other thing that it does is it allows people to live in like a really wide variety of ways in ways right. that are not at all like far more capacious including like ways that seem to be like um actually like functionally outside of that law right you know like it has this kind of like um 
it's capacious in a way that like is not the case um, uh, uh, in the sort of like rule of law that we live under, right? Mm -hmm. Um, so I guess I think that like, you know, there's, there are moments when it feels like invoking the rule of law is invoking something substantive. And there are moments when it feels like invoking the rule of law is a little bit like, uh, you know, this is like this, this is the place where you get stuck. Right. Mm -hmm. And then, which is why it's interesting, like, just as you were saying, it's interesting that then you get that idea of like, well, maybe we need some kind of like earth goddess religion. Right. Um, uh, which would truly be unlawful in all kinds of ways, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, but th- I think this is a feature of, you know, you know, Robinson's oeuvre or Robinson's worldview that is just part of, you know, maybe it's a limitation on his utopian thinking or something, but I think it is also like just inherently difficult to think about, you know, what it, what would a world that beyond the rule of law look like? Um, and, I think that the, that his commitment over the decades in in book after book to some kind of the necessity of some kind of religious ideology that um, or like quasi religious ideology whatever that can sit alongside like the Pope and the King essentially right that can sit alongside the rule of law um, is really an interesting. And like, I mean, it's a, it's a central aspect of his, of his, of his novels, uh, and of his work, I think. And it's one that I don't think gets talked about, uh, uh, at all, but I think it's a fascinating one. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, and I, I, I think also like, it, I mean, to me, you know, I mean, this is, a, I think that like, uh, I don't see like as with Aurora, where I, I feel like there were actually quite a lot of opportunities to be quite critical of the idea that like, you know, uh, one must have the rule of law. Right. Mm-hmm. I kind of feel like that opportunity is here, too. Right. Part of what you're getting is the chance to like think about, you know, right. think about what what it means to take or to assume that that's a baseline. And then like, what, it, what are the other possibilities? Well, know? and then also like, what are the possibilities within the rule of law to change the rule of law? Because at a certain point, I mean, in this novel and in our own current political reality, like the rule of law is so clearly unjust and unjustifiable. Exactly. And so how do you, you know, is it possible within the system to change the system? And this novel, in the inclusion of violent uh, direct action, um, posits the, the case that actually, you know, no, maybe there are some outside influences that would be necessary, like um, at, some some influences outside of the rule of law that would be necessary to effectuate change. So that moment uh, in our chunk um, where basically the fishing vessel gets hijacked uh, yeah. by pirates um, and then sunk. They free, the, they free the slaves. They free the slaves. Exactly. They free the slaves. And, um, and yeah, with the goal of no more fishing. Yeah, exactly. They, in one, in, you know, it's an amazing, that's an amazing section because like they, they free the slaves. Um, and we don't know whether the guys who had enslaved the guys got off the boat, but, uh, you know, I don't know. It's hard for me to care very much about that, but in one movement, they both free the enslaved people and they say, and they, you know, they take a step toward trying to um, protect, you know, 
a bunch of like um, swimming people who can't speak for themselves, yeah. right? Like the fish. Yeah. And and thus the whole, like the whole, you know, like this vast like network of um, life in the ocean, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it, it is like, you know, I don't think, I mean, I think it's not, it's not the case that you can't, you know, like imagine what it's like to live without the law, right? Mm-hmm, I mean, mm-hmm. like we've both read The Dispossessed. That's a book right. about like living without the law. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think it's like the, it's this question about, um, you yeah. know, like, is there is there something that you can think of? Because here we see, you know, like I, th- I think this book makes it quite, I mean, it it is so kind of clear about, um, you know, um, the hegemonic, um, power of the United States, right. which is about, um, you know, uh, the U S dollar, mm-hmm. right. You know, the entanglement of like capital in the state, right. There's not a state that's not the state of capital, mm-hmm. you know, and maybe we see a version of that, like, um, in this idea of like a democratic, India, right? And this mm-hmm. kind of like electoral transformation mm-hmm. there. Um, but like, you know, in some ways that like, um, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism, you know, kind of goes along with this question about like, well, what do you want to do with the law? Right. Like, as long as the law is like part, you know, is like the sort of um, the way in which like the bourgeois state works. And as long as like the ministry for the future is just this kind of like supplement to a supplement that is the Paris, you know, a supplement to a supplement to a supplement, right? Right. A supplement to the climate accords, which is like a supplement to the UN, you know, (laughs) you know, because the US can still like refuse to recognize Mm -hmm. like, you know, the criminal court in the Hague or whatever. Right. Like, Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. I think, I, I think that like, uh, yeah, anyway, I just, I think that these quite, I, I like to think that like these ideas are like generative or yeah. like asking you to like think yeah. more, right? You know, I mean, I, this is like a kind of, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the 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 Socratic dialogue on, in chapter 17, which ends about the rule of law, um, which, you know, at one point they talk about money being an actor uh, as, as like acting as gravity does. Um, uh, who matters the most in that group of 8 million, the people who make the decisions? Government legislatures, that's a bad thought. No, it isn't. Why would you say that? <laughs> Corruption, stupidity, rule of law. But, but me don't buts, rule of law. What a weak read to stand on, yes. What can we do about that? Just make it a stick. So how do you make the read that you're standing on that is the rule of law into a stick? And there's like a lot of, throughout the novel, there's carrot stick questions mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that also pervade, you know, Robinson's works. Um you can't just discipline people. You have to reward them as well. Uh, but you can't just reward people. You have to discipline them as well. Um, <laughs> so yeah, that, that's another one of these provocations that are, that, uh, exist early on in the novel about like, and, and these barriers or these, you know, hurdles that we have to think our way out of, um, or, or think our way through as well. <laughs> My uh, cat has just gotten one of them. Milton has just gotten up on the desk and is like butting his head into the microphone and the book. It's like um, is she speaking, getting, is Milton speaking getting, of speaking for the creatures who can't speak. <laughs> does, is, does she? Is that does that does Milton want us to stop recording? Is that what? 
Uh, well, I think saying? he thinks. I think he's suggesting that it's dinner time. Dinner time. Yeah. Yeah. I um, mean, it's actually his. Um, yeah, he's being well, rather clear about it. Let's <laughs> let's go ahead and um, conclude then, if you'd like. Maybe we can uh, claim chapter seventeen as an end point and pick up at eighteen, maybe, or mm -hmm. just use the kind of one through 24 as a cloud that we can refine ourselves in. And yeah. If, and I, I would, I would love it if we, cause I feel like we've like referenced, but I'd like to talk about the stuff about PTSD and yeah, yeah. behavioral therapy. Yeah, for like, sure. Yeah. That's really interesting. And, um, uh, yeah, I would like to talk about that. Definitely. And I would also like to talk about that chapter 20, which is the Gini coefficient yes, uh, happiness sure. index yeah. chapter. Um, I'll just, one last thing I'll say is just, um, I'll take, you know, uh, I take it as a direct insult to you and I, the thing that happens on the bottom of 54 and the top of 55, where Bob Wharton says, um, mainly need to tell adaptation advocates they're full of shit, bunch of economists, humanities professors, they have no idea what they're talking about adaptation just a fantasy now i'm just kidding because adaptation obviously is clearly a fantasy but i don't need to have any more you know abuse laid on me for being a humanities professor even from bob wharton no no and when we when we learn in the uh in the um <laughs> i'm teasing i'm teasing <laughs> when we learn in the chapter about uh um happiness indexes that like the, right. the amount of money that people need is a hundred thousand dollars a year i felt like wah, wah. yeah <laughs> Well, I love that comment. Like, also, also happens to be about the uh, roughly the amount of money that scientists earn a year, which yeah, exactly. which people thought was curious, but yeah. they all shrugged about it. You know, definitely not the amount of money that contingent faculty in the humanities make. Man, the okay, you know the the fuck this asshole on Twitter was because Biden was like, your taxes aren't going up if you make more than four or less than four hundred thousand dollars a year. And this asshole on Twitter was like, oh, Biden thinks that uh, four hundred thousand dollars is, uh, you know, upper class. Tell that to anybody living in a major city. And I'm what? just like, <laughs> I was like, I would love for you to know how much, you know, like, give me a fuck. Yeah, shut the fuck Jesus up. Jesus fucking Christ. Yeah. Shut yeah, the right. hell up because, yeah, I mean, can you imagine, Hillary, how different would your life be if you made $400,000 in Chicago? Holy shit. Can you imagine? I mean, so rich. Oh I, can't I can't imagine. <laughs> I cannot imagine. Like, that would be heaven to me. I would be, I would be smiling all day long forever if I made $400,000 <laughs> and living in Chicago. There was me, you no, know, I would... You know, I would be one of these assholes like complaining about the protesters and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. The magic, it would be the magic of money. Well, uh, my property taxes might go up. Oh, no. <laughs> well, you know, we do spend $18,000 a year on little Johnny's piano lessons, uh, and he needs to have that. Otherwise, what? He might only get into a, you know, a sub Ivy League school. Or yeah, I was going to say one of the lesser Ivies. He might have to go to Penn. <laughs> Zing. He might have to go to Cornell. Ugh, yuck. Anyway, oh, all right, oh. so we've given you an hour and a half on, you know, just, you know, a little bit. So there's so much to talk about in this book. It's so exciting. Yeah, I really hope people, this was really, um, 
this is really fun to start talking about it. And like, I hope that people are excited about it. Cause I, I don't know. I mean, I think it's pretty cool. I think it's, it's pretty cool, Matt. <laughs> you know, I, I, yes, exactly. I, uh, I think, I think it's an important book. I really do. I think it's an important and challenging and urgent book. And it's about today and it's about, it confronts us with, you know, all the really, really uncomfortable things that are part of our life that don't have anything to do with Donald Trump. The words Donald Trump do not fucking uh, appear in this book. Yes, yes, yes He exactly. is, you know, fucking stop talking about him. And as I say that, I'm going to log on to Twitter as soon as we finish this and like find yeah. out what other stupid <laughs> shit that he's done today. I know, but yeah, exactly. Like just like stop fucking thinking about him, you know? Honestly, honestly, let's get on with it. Okay, all right, see you next week. Uh, and uh, thank you for listening. Uh, thank you for listening. I've been Matt and she's been Hillary and you can email us at maroon on Mars podcast at gmail.com and tweet us at podcast on Mars and uh, rate and review us on uh, Apple podcasts or wherever. That's right. Wherever and read more of ministry for the future. And uh, yeah, 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 it's, it's all going to be, well, nothing will be fine. No, but no. But there will be another episode of the podcast. Yeah, yeah. And there is wine and beer in the world, so still. So, you know, there's at least that. Exactly. Wine wine, beer and, and uh animal companions. And your milk yeah. Non 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 human persons. Non human persons. Snuggle up to. All right. <laughs> All right, I gotta go watch the Dodger game. Bye. All right, bye.